America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. The script is getting written for the last great venture here on Safe for Democracy, and I thought it was time to give you folks a bit of an outline for what the next six months and the Vietnam series are going to look like. I think the first thing I ought to establish here is why I picked Vietnam in the first place. Since the very beginning, the mission of the show has been to cast light on little-known conflicts and disasters in the history of U.S. foreign policy. And there's good reason not to focus on Vietnam. More pages are devoted to that conflict than maybe any other one in American history, and if it's not the winner, then only World War II might challenge it. The idea, the impetus behind SFD, got its start a long, long time ago, more than five years back, when I was digging around in old Fidel Castro quotes for epigraphs for my senior thesis. I came across this one in his 1985 Playboy interview. The interview was, for some reason, a pretty serious institution for a pretty long time, the first one ever was done with Castro right after the revolution, and Playboy held them with most of the most important figures of the mid-century. For the 1985 expedition to Havana, for example, quote, The questioners themselves are an unusual team, since the interviews were conducted by freelance writer and political science professor Dr. Jeffrey M. Elliott and U.S. Representative Mervyn M. Dimoli, who also holds a Ph.D., a member of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the president of the Caribbean American Research Institute. Because of these credentials, and because of the tradition of Playboy's interviews, Castro sat for what he called the longest and most far-reaching interview ever with a North American journalist. Ten days after Elliot and Dimoli returned, Kirby Jones, an expert on Cuba and a co-author of a 1975 book on Castro, raised several additional topics with the Cuban leader that were incorporated into the interview, unquote. Anyway, I was reading through this book-length interview, this book-length piece of journalism, for something that would sound good at the head of a chapter of my thesis, and I came up totally empty on that front, but I did see this. Quote, Playboy, what international measures would you propose to force South Africa to abandon its policy of apartheid? Castro, as long as South Africa continues to receive technological assistance, economic assistance, and assistance in the form of weapons, it will remain unaltered and will continue in its blackmailing position. South Africa, like Pinochet, the West's other fascist ally, parades itself before the West as the great standard-bearer of anti-communism and other social changes. Uh, it bears mentioning at this point that what Castro is talking about 
is that there was an ongoing proxy war, the Angolan Civil War, in which Cuba and the Soviet Union were supporting the socialist side and the United States, by way of South Africa, was supporting the other uh, side. Anyway, Castro continues, I wonder, is there any fascist regime in the last 40 years that has not been an ally of the United States? In Spain, the Franco regime. In Portugal, the Salazar regime. In South Korea, the fascist military. In Central America, Somoza. The military dictatorships in Guatemala and El Salvador. And Strassner. The military dictatorships in Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil, as well as the Duvalier regime. I don't know of any reactionary fascist state that has not been a close ally of the United States. Yes, the West is responsible for the survival of apartheid. How can you justify the aggressive, subversive measures against Nicaragua, the economic blockade of Cuba, which has already lasted 26 years, and then talk about constructive relations with the apartheid regime? If South Africa were effectively isolated, economic measures were implemented against it, and everyone were to support them, the apartheid system would come to an end. The measures the United States takes against socialist countries are not taken against apartheid. Nothing about apartheid has produced sufficient revulsion in the leaders of Western countries. Just a few embarrassing situations that they try to explain with hypocritical statements, unquote. I've said to you folks many times that I think my pretty excellent education fell down hard on this one point, the sticking point of U.S. influence in the world. I'd heard enough tangentially in passing about what we'd been up to that this paragraph or this pair of paragraphs finally spoke to me. They finally clicked. It's like a kaleidoscope. One minute everything looks one way and you make one tiny movement and it becomes entirely different and entirely more in focus. It's like seeing an optical illusion for the first time. Suddenly everything is different and you can't ever go back to seeing it the way you did originally. What I wanted SFD to do was allow everyone to see the world the way that I do. A much sadder, more depressing, less hopeful place. One in which this country that we were taught to see from birth as a savior is a bad actor, much like, and sometimes much worse than, bad actors and imperial powers have been through all of history. Part of that mission, the mission of SFD, would necessarily be to cover the whole breadth of our malefactions, from nearly every country in Latin America, through assassinations and apartheid in Africa, to the killing fields of Cambodia, Pol Pot, undermining Sukarno in Indonesia, and the dozens of other times that the U.S. ruined ruined a place while the American people either never noticed or looked on in total apathy. I wanted to make Vietnam the last of all of these series, the crown jewel of Safe for Democracy. Not because it's not well known, and not because some of the skullduggery we took part in is also well publicized, but because Vietnam encapsulated everything we were doing, from assassinations to death camps to widespread murder from above, overseas, to domestic spying, unrest, and race relations back home. Vietnam brought it all together, and it got enough attention from the six presidents who oversaw our activities there to let none of them escape culpability, the way that inattention might exculpate some of them for other sundry coups and killings. And, well, if I'd had the time, that's the way I would have done it. But I'm running out of time, quicker every day now, it seems, and I've just got to get to it now and not later. I'm going to make a probably not so short show that covers everything else I would have originally very briefly, maybe five short minutes for each incident, but that will at least cover the full swathe of what SFD was originally meant to talk about. Other than that, well, I'm just going to have to do Vietnam, and I'm going to try to make sure I bring up everything else as it comes up on the timeline along the way. 
As for the structure of the Vietnam series, I think I've got a pretty good idea of how I want it to look already. The first episode or two, which I'm writing right now, are going to cover the history of Vietnam from 2200 BC or so, right up through the summer of 1945, August 1945. After that, we'll have one or two on the French War to retake the country through to the end of 1954. At that point, I'll have to make a decision. I've been playing around with the idea of doing episodes on single battles in the wars to try to give some impression of the war in the dirt, since I'll so often be jetting between Washington, Saigon, and Hanoi. If I end up doing that, the first battle episode will be on Dien Bien Phu at the end of the French War. The second will be on the Battle of At Bac in 1962, the third on the battles in the Yadrang in 1965, Khe Sanh in 1968, and then maybe selected pieces from the NVA drive to Saigon from 74 to 75. Anyway, whether or not I decide to do those battle episodes, I'll cover the interim next under Ngo Dien Diem, or Diem. I'm going to have to put some work into Vietnamese pronunciation too, through to 1960. At that point, it'll be the American War, broken up between JFK, Johnson, and Nixon, with maybe a couple of episodes for each one of them. I'll also be able to cover topics like music, domestic politics, race, and even more esoteric stuff like arms manufacturing. It's not all that well known, but Monsanto, the makers of Roundup and current near-monopolizers of the world agricultural industry, got their first big government contract during Vietnam, producing Agent Orange for the armed forces. In all, I think that there's no way I'll get this done in anything less than 14 episodes, and the chances of me polishing them all off before the last weeks of August, when law school starts, is slim at best. I'll do what I can, and I've got most of the reading I want to get done done, but the list always grows as I go on, and it's a long, long way between now and Operation Frequent Wind, the evacuation of Saigon in 1975. If anybody wants to follow along as I do this, though, I can let you know what sources are going to be the mainstays of this series. For culture, that is Vietnamese culture, I'm relying on Fire in the Lake by Frances Fitzgerald, a lady American journalist who spent a great deal of time in Vietnam. She relies on, and I've got a little bit of Paul Muse, along with Gerald Hickey's A Village in Vietnam, which likewise relies on Muse, who is a French anthropologist. I'm also relying on Jean Lecouture, another Frenchman who did extensive reporting work in Vietnam and wrote both a political biography of Ho Chi Minh and the book Vietnam Between Two Truces, which have both been immensely enlightening. For the day-by-day -day history of the war, I'm relying on McClear's 10,000-day war and Vietnam colon a history, uh, both of which have their own documentary series that I'd say are probably more honest than the one that Ken Burns just turned out. As for dishonesty on the American side, besides Ken Burns, Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, Neil Sheehan's A Bright Shining Lie, and John Lewis Gaddis's books, especially Strategies of Containment, have been and will be my big helps. Those books also double for domestic politics, along with Halberstam's The Coldest Winter, which is about the Korean War, and a little bit of Reinhold Niebuhr's The Irony of American History. Niebuhr's famous as a smart thinker on America, but I found the book pretty facile and illustrative of a totally wrong-headed understanding of American history, one which characterized our thinking in the mid-century and one which will help me to illustrate the guys that came down on the wrong side of history. For color on the ground, as well as hard fact, I'm looking at Bernard Fall, a French journalist, another French journalist, who spent nearly a decade in Vietnam before being killed during the American War. 
Michael Hare, who was an American journalist who wrote Dispatches, an almost gonzo history that's been the basis of a good number of the last 30 years of Vietnam War movies, and Colonel and then later General Hal Moore's We Were Soldiers, an account of the battle in the Yadrang, and the basis of the much more pro-American movie of the same name, We Were Soldiers. I'll have all this up on the show page so that you can check them out if you're interested. Lastly, I've got some side projects cooking. Some, like the 50 States correspondent job and a few journalistic ventures I want to wrap up before I'm out of the game for a few years, have nothing to do with SFD. Others I've been promising you for a long time, like a video on movies and an interview with Maya Jabaili, my journalist friend from Lebanon. I'm working on getting those out, but time will tell. I'm also trying to set up a discussion of the short shows with some of the smart folks that I know, which will help to reduce my week-to-week burden and free up some time for Vietnam. And that is about the size of what's to come in the next six months, folks. It's more work than I can almost hope to get done, but I'll chip away at it, and hopefully by the end we'll have put something together worth hearing and worth having occupied my last half year as a freelancer and writer before I move on to other, maybe less romantic things. I'm John Coombs, and this, for a little while longer, is safe for democracy. (laughs) 